Good day to everybody. This is a podcast on high yield soybean attempt. And the reason I put attempt in this title, even though it's probably not so exciting, is because there are certain elements that no matter what we do as a grower, we cannot control. Some of those is like things like rainfall, heat, and the timing of uh, heat and water. So without a pivot and without the ability to control temperatures and such, we do fall um, into the hands of Mother Nature to an extent. But the question we really have is high yield soybeans. And if those things are correct, how do we maximize yield on soybean acres? And the reason we have BEX up here on the screen and PFR proven stamp is because all the information we're using comes from BEX PFR proven practices focused around soybeans and increasing yields on soybeans. And so today's uh, all today's slides come ultimately from that, the PFR proven, they're PFR proven stamps. That means that they have had three years of positive return on investment in BEX PFR um, systems and um, their locations. They have done this for more than three, year, three years or more. In some cases there are more years than three and they improve yield and ultimately ROI. We do need to tell you that while these have shown positive ROI in these PFR sites, I, Wendell Cohen, um, always recommend that you try these things in small increments on your farm before you take it large scale. It's important that the information that you take here is um, doable on your farm and operation and that you record your own results as every farm and every grower differs farm to farm, area to area, and geography to geography. I will say is I have tried to look through these slides myself and try to hinge it upon what is in our area and what is workable. However, even in that case, you still need to make your own choice and your own decisions on what you feel is best. But I do think the information here is quite extensive and can probably um, help in some way your operation may make some changes. Some are products that you might have to purchase, others are just simply practices. So without further ado, we're going to dive into this. I will tell you this has been organized according to the time and extent that it takes to prepare to do these products or practices and where they would line up in the season. So for example, we're going to start out with um, drainage, drainage of your soils and uh, PFR proven practices of drainage. Drainage is a big deal, but it's also a big expense and takes time and usually fall and winter to do. So that's why it's first. And we're going to end up, I think the last slide is something like fungicide, which is some of the last things you would do before you go to harvest. So anyway, we're going to dive right in. Welcome here. First thing we're talking about is internal drainage. Um, the XPFR site, Southern Illinois, has similar clay soils as Southwest Missouri. This is one, I'm going to make a disclaimer, does not have a PFR proven stamp necessarily in this one because I wanted to use Southern Illinois. I feel like they have more of the weather as well as the soils that we have in our area. Clay soils as like we do in Southwest Missouri where we have where internal drainage is more of a problem than you would you get further in the North Country where they have looser soils. 
So the study shows here, if you look at this, we're doing two things. We're doing certain um, tile spacing, and then we're also checking depth. And if you look here, um, narrower is better if you are deeper. And if you'll notice here on 15, in, 15 foot, sorry, 15 foot um, centers is better at 36 inches in depth. And we have a 24 inch depth. Um, 30 feet was actually better than 15 on depth yield advantage on a five-year tile spacing and depth. And I'm pretty sure, not 100% sure on this. Yes, I, I am actually. It is a Southern Illinois um, test. And that's the reason I chose it over others is I felt like it'd be more similar to our area. But I believe tile works even better in other areas with looser soils on broader strokes. I think some places up in Northern Iowa years ago, probably 20, 30 years ago, they went to like 70 to 90 foot centers. Now they're bringing them in narrower than that. But as you can understand, their soil types does make a difference on how easily they can drain internally. And our area, we are tighter soils. This can be, uh, in my opinion, a bigger issue. This type of a practice is the highest cost about of anything you're going to do on your farm other than buying the ground. Um, but I will say that if you can get it done in certain areas, um, like you see in the picture of that field, uh, Missouri spring rains will do charge the grower a very high cost and setting up um, young plants, soybeans or corn on the wrong foot um, is a detriment to yield right off the bat. So with that, we'll go to the next thing is pre-plant seed enhancements. Um, as you know, environment degrades our seed. You open the bag, like they say, is, is where your ultimate optimum um, yield potential is right there. You pour it in the planter and environment begins to um, pull that yield down. Uniformity of emergence plays a very important role. And I think soybeans, is. we are finding out soybeans are even finding that to be as a just important role, I should say as important role as corn, but we find it to be more important than we first thought, perhaps from years ago. And we're finding that there are products out here that can remove some of these barriers and help achieve a more vibrant stand. One of those is Wex. It's a wetting agent that when you apply, um, a lot of times you apply either nutrients, liquid foliars or herbicides, I'm sorry, not foliar fertilizers, don't apply wax with fertilizers, it says. But when you apply uh, herbicides and go over your ground, wax can help um, the effectiveness of your pesticides with your improved suspension. Terramax Dry is an inoculant. It contains two strains of a rhizobium and has a proprietary stabilization media. One of the selling points of Terramax Dry is that it has a 30-day seed stability. So you can apply it, you can put it on your seed with your seed tender. As long as you apply a plant within 30 days, um, it's still viable, which is a huge advantage over other products in the past who have been more like 24 hours, where you have to make sure you get it planted that day. And then if you get rained out, the viability becomes uncertain. So Terramax Dry Inoculant has shown on a three-year PFR, 1.3 bushel advantage. We go to Graphex SA for soybeans inoculant. It is also proven to show a positive yield advantage in multi-locations and is also 
a uh, an option to consider an inoculant. In times Pat, we'll talk about Vault SP just a little bit. I don't know a lot about it. It's a BASF product. And it is also both these two bottom ones have to be applied within 24 hours for maximum viability. But other than that, I'm going to say an oculant has not been something that has been done in the southwest Missouri area until maybe recently, except for like, you know, new ground or fallow ground. I am saying that there is starting to be a more of a drive towards that and a question of whether the modern inoculants today have enough technology to provide on a continuous cropping system, provide a better uh, return on investment than we had seen out of it years ago. So it's something to keep an eye on. In some cases, a one bushel advantage in soybeans is a big deal. However, as you can see in 21, it was a 0.2 of an advantage. One starts to wonder how much it's worth it. In a wet year, we've seen it was 2.2 .2 in 2019 with Terramax Dry, for example. Sometimes I feel like if you don't see two to three bushel advantage in soybeans on research like this, I start to wonder how much we should focus on it or how much it's worth the time. But this is something to keep an eye on because I think there is a a high potential here for higher yields and um, so just keep an eye on something like this and we'll go to our next thing pre-plant seed treatments so on seed treatments um, I don't think it's a question any longer on whether or not seed treatment on soybeans is a good thing um, there's a positive ROI on it year after year after year over a naked bean you look at seed treatments and how they surround the seed with protective chemistry and biologicals and looking at the Bex Escalate seed treatment system with the regular treatment have having seven modes of action and our upgrade to Alevo with 2.0 has 10 modes of action. And we see on year after year, I think Bex Escalate seed treatment has a positive ROI in multi-location testing for 12 years straight. And we're not having any questions any longer on seed treatment. When we look at SDS and the levels of infection that continue to rise, I am beginning to change my thinking to feel that this upgrade for, for sure early planted beans and even up into June planted beans are still receiving challenges of sudden death syndrome. Um, I think it's a situation that's on the rise in our area. It's not something that will reverse because you cannot really reduce the inoculum in the soil. It only goes dormant when it's not being um, aggravated. But as time goes on, I think we're seeing more and more of this condition in our soils and we're needing that extra mode of action uh, to combat it. With Bex Escalate seed treatment, you have Alevo plus 2.0 and you also have an SDS plus, which gives you two modes of action on against SDS. And I think this can be Fairly effective. Nothing's an absolute, but we're finding that there can be a definite positive ROI in adding a Levo to your Escalate treatment. We're seeing also SDS is coming in late at times. A lot of times we see the late July and early August rains affect this. And um, I'm not positive on a correlation between a Levo and the late infections. The good news with late infections that occur 
is a lot of times there's not as big of a yield difference um, versus infections that occur because of early planting. So bottom line is your soybeans going to the field need to have seed treatment to continue to work towards your high yields on your farm. Pre-plant pre population. A lot of things in the past, have one of the things that have changed over past years of farming is uh, planting population on soybeans. Years ago with drills and things like that, I think 170 to 200,000 was considered to be norm. And as the years have gone by with narrow row planters have become adopted, we're seeing uh, populations lower. Here in Southwest Missouri, we're seeing a lot of populations um, down there in that 120 to 140 range. Um, we have to remember that soybean yield correlates with nodes per acre, not plants per acre. And so when we plant too many, we actually can reduce nodes per acre by overpopulating the area. And Beck's PFR shows that early planted up to May 15, April 16 to May 15, there is a 100,000 seeds per acre. Is there economic, um, economic optimum um, return on seeding rate? Now, do I want to see you go out and plant 100,000 seeds per acre and then we get high, heavy amounts of rain through May and we reduce our stand down into 50, 60,000? No. I'm not necessarily saying that, but I am saying that if we had a final stand of 90,000, you have an optimum ability to maximize yield. In fact, you probably have a greater chance of having a better yield at 90 to 100,000 final stand than you do if you had a final stand of like 140. Um, we're seeing that those higher stand counts are actually reducing yield and so we need to be careful here because we do need good weed control, but too high of pops can reduce yield. And my experience is on our own operation is that 60,000 even can still provide good weed control. And on our farm on multiple years, we have been able to raise over 60 bushel beans on 60,000 final stand. That doesn't mean that's an ideal stand. Doesn't mean I like it, but it's not as critical as one might think. And so as we look at more like 70 to 80,000, I think a lot of times those stands can be left and they are better than spotting in soybeans and um, overpopulating. I won't go into all the tests and details we've done our own operation with different population blocks that we've been doing for multiple years, but I do feel with what we've seen in results is I really like to see somewhere between a 120 to 135 on most years. Maybe starting out in the low 120s on your operation in early spring, and maybe 130,000 no-till conditions, 135 conditions of um, up to like maybe June the 10th. Um, on soils that don't produce, we need to have a caveat here. I want to give a caveat to the population thing on soils that are light, poorly drained, or where you struggle to get soybean height, we need higher pops to drive height. Double crops is an example in which the season, the environment of that time of year, reduces plant height potentially. And so a lot higher populations are needed as we get close to July. So this should not be a one size fits all on population 
as it relates to soybeans, but as we change through the year and the sunlight changes in day length and we get past that summer solstice, we need to understand that there's a whole different dynamic going on with population. And so in extreme weather years like 2019, for example, I typically throw low pops and trying to govern population to soil types out the window and just simply raise populations across the board on our entire farm. So a lot of times I'll get asked, what do you recommend to plant soybeans at? And we're sitting down maybe in January talking about a seed plan. My response to that is, when you're preparing the planter to go to the field tomorrow, call me. We'll talk about it and we'll see what we're feeling and what our risks are with the weather we've had, with the temperatures we're getting, et cetera, et cetera. But by and large, reducing our population from where we used to be down into those 120 to 130 range is a really good baseline prediction to have. And then we might bump them up as we get later into June. And then as we keep getting later into June, we're just going to keep raising it by the time we get to July. I think optimum rates might be around that 200,000 seeds per acre. We'll move on to our next slide is planter on closing wheels. If you have a John Deere planter with two solid rubber wheels or a Kinsey planter with rubber wheels, almost any closing wheel other than two rubber wheels will provide an increase in yield. We can look across the sidebar here and we can pick out ones that have done better or, or not necessarily, but the main takeaway that I want to put out here today is OEM two solid rubbers almost always fall behind aftermarket. There is one condition in which you might see an equal result out of them and that would be perfect soils, perfect temps, and work ground. I think the closing the two rubber wheels can do an okay job in that. We need to, and the reason is, is because the solid rubber has really struggles at times to collapse the sidewall or fracture it and push it shut without air pockets, without smearing it shut. When you get some of these other designed aftermarket um, closing wheels, like the Yetter Poly Twister, it has a way of pushing it shut fracturing the sidewall and not leaving it smeared shut, which causes compaction and a lot of other problems. If you don't close the slot, then you allow air, herbicide, and insects to attack the seed and it can cause problems with stand and unevenness of your stand, which obviously will cause yield conditions. When you get into heavier residue, we're also finding the rubber wheels aren't doing as good of a job as we're finding with some of these other aftermarkets. They're able to move through that residue better and handle it and in the different changing types of soil environment. Years ago, they used to recommend uh, solid rubber wheels for your tilled dirt and then the spike type for maybe other kind. But changing some of their technology today, we're finding that um, these... Um, Closing wheels are a lot more, um, a lot better over a broader amount of acres. They don't, aren't as specific to your conditions as they used to be. And I'll say locally in Southwest Missouri, um, our farm has done very, very well with the Yetter Poly Twister. I've talked to guys in our area over a broad spectrum, you know, between central Missouri down to here. And a lot of guys I'm hearing from have had good luck with them. 
that does not mean that they're the only one out there. Uh, we've had some good luck with Copperhead Ag Thorough Cruisers and the others I'm just not acquainted with. But again, the main takeaway in this is aftermarket closing wheels do a better job than solid rubber wheels. Row cleaners and downpours. Row cleaners have, have been used quite a bit in corn. They're less, um, we see them less maybe in soybeans. But row cleaners can move your residue out of the way and can result in a smoother unit row unit ride and keep positive engagement with the soil, which will improve the depth of the soybean. It can also reduce, you know, the hairpinning that comes from um, openers, that hairpin residue down into the trench and then reduce um, consistent emergence. I sometimes have felt that maybe that's why when you work your ground lightly and create a seed bed, you possibly can have a better uh, soybean emergence afterwards. Um, a lot of times can be simply because of that. You don't have to deal with all the residue. Maybe in a no-till situation, row cleaners can move your residue and maybe achieve a similar result. The other thing we're going to focus on is hydraulic downforce with weight pin control. This allows your planter to adjust rapidly to different changing conditions throughout across the field. And I will say is that if you are going to do any upgrade to your planter um, going forward and you have like, you know, precision planting meters and you have things like that already and you've upgraded different things and you're looking at something else, hydraulic downforce can pay off really big because it is doing a very excellent job at maintaining um, gauge wheel contact, which results in depth, uh, consistency, and with Beck's PFR testing on hydraulic settings, when they would take a static hydraulic setting and just um, run across the field with one setting, and then they would turn around and do an automated setting, you can see the results here is 1,429 acres they paid for the system with a 16-row planter. And there was a 1.4 bushel per acre advantage on hydraulic versus over non uh, or a static hydraulic setting. So if you have spring or even air and one is not automatic and is not able to keep enough pressure to the ground or maybe too much over too many acres, I think that that yield difference would be even greater because at this point we're still comparing the same system, just manual versus automatic. And this is three years of testing with the precision planting uh, delta force. Singulated plate on a planter. This is something that's caught my eye a while ago already, and I'm hearing a lot of good results on it. It's a very low cost thing to um, invest in for your planter. And singulation has long been called important in corn, but what about in soybeans? I think equal plant to plant competition and uniform branching will increase nodes per acre. And I think we're seeing this bear out in the yield advantage that we're seeing of that one bushel per acre over three years. Now, in times past, we haven't thought it to be so important with soybeans, but extremely important in corn. Um, however, with soybeans, I believe that a, low, a lower population stand planted evenly would be a lot higher yield advantage than a higher population unevenly. And so as we see the nodes per acre increase because of that evenness, it seems like to me 
that even though soybeans have more tolerance from plant to plant, how close they are, how far apart, and how un inconsistent that is, they have more tolerance in corn as far as their flex and ability to flex. I don't think that they, it is still a one-to-one, -one, what I call a one-to-one -one yield change on unequal spacing with Mother Nature. If you put two beans really close together, as you'll walk out in the field and see, and then you have a gap, even though the two closer together are going to have together may have a few more nodes than the plant together them two than the one beside it that's a spaced out by itself i think overall you're going to see that that's not a one-to-one -one, um, change and so as we plant equally and have even amounts of nodes and branching i think there you'll see a definite a yield advantage there <coughs> excuse me so low population planted evenly, I believe, is a, another key to maximizing yield. <coughs> Grab this water bottle here before I continue getting a dry throat. Next thing we talk about is nutrition, uh, foliar. This one's interesting because it's more complex for one thing as you can see over on the right hand side we have two quarts of this at a certain stage and all of this was applied i looked at the labels to see if this was all based on labels and i couldn't tell it was so i don't know if the research that was done here when they applied it at that time frame if it was because they just felt it was the best time to do it or what exactly the labels on some of these products that i looked up seem to have a variance to really no guidance at all on when to apply it some of them were just throw it in with your herbicide timing so that might be why some of those are at v4 versus an r1 others said they needed to be between r1 to r3 and so foliar becomes a lot more complex because we don't have specific guidance like we do with something like fungicide but we do know that during rapid growths at R1 in a soybean, that plant needs large amount, larger amounts of nutrients to keep itself um, healthy and going. And so having an application at or right ahead of that time frame could be a good thing. For example, we see something that like Versamax uh, manganese, it was applied at V4 with two quarts. This here would be maybe several weeks ahead of R1. I'm not positive exactly how much time frame, but it would be ahead of that time. So perhaps it would be getting it into the plant ahead of time so it was prepared for that load that was going to take place when it starts to bloom. Others are applied at R1 for the most part, with the exception of the Brant Smart um, BMO, which is more of a product, I think, that helps change more like your pH of your water, your hard water. If I, if I remember correctly, and helps make more available what you're applying. So during rapid growth, we already talked about that, uh, they need more nutrients to sustain themselves. Foliars are more useful in areas of reduced access to soil nutrition. So, you know, if you have high pH and your soil is binding up product, you might see a bigger bump there. Or like in coarse soils, for example, or in areas where it's too dry or maybe too wet even. We can see this to be more useful. We certainly do not want to look at foliars and say these are our source for our comprehensive fertilizer program. 
That is not what they're intended for. They're simply to help the plant sustain itself through higher loads of its life where it's blooming or putting on pods. We also see, have seen time and time again, Beck's PFR proven practice is they're more profitable in the morning. 8 a.m. is best. It's better than 3 p.m. or 9 p.m. 9 p.m. and 3 p.m. actually do not show much difference the way I remember the charts. And then if we use um, water conditioners like this uh, Brandt uh, Indicate 5, um, they might add another bushel or so to counter your hard water to help your foliars when they do hit the, they don't bind up in the hard water and they're able to hit the plant and actually be taken in. Water conditioners might be need to be something that if you're going to see the results that you want to see, you need to use the conditioner with it to keep stuff from binding up because that actually can be a quite a big deal and could be very disappointing to go to the work of foliar feeding only to find that there wasn't a result and we're not sure if it's because the water was too hard. We're seeing pH levels need to be somewhere in that four and a half to five and a half um, for an optimum level. Some of the products, like I think it's the Brandt, will actually turn pink when it's right. So you just keep pouring into it until you see the right uh, color, um, the way I understand. Inferro nutrition. This one here is interesting. Corn, a lot of people do this. Some say it works, some say it doesn't. I'm not here to be the judge necessarily. We don't see a lot of information when it comes to soybeans. There is one product, however, that's been tested for three years and has a PFR proven stamp. And it's a starter fertilizer called First Pass with microcarb. It's a 3515 analysis of two gallons in furrow at planting. And we can see over three years, it's had a pretty decent return, 2.7 bushel. And so we're kind of approaching that point where I'm saying, three bushel, two to three bushel in a testing, it might be worth taking a look at. We're seeing in 2017, it had a low, went as low as 1.3 bushels per acre. And we had it in 2015 at 4.9. So this is something to think about. I am personally not a huge believer in starter fertilizer as it relates to final yield results. I do think it can help sometimes with emergence and things like that, um, but nor am I here to say it's not a good deal, but it is something I wanted to throw out there. If you have the capability on your planner, this might be something to try uh, to help boost a little bit more yield in your soybeans. Fungicide foliar. Um, we look at fungicides primarily to prevent disease, but they do other things as well, especially when they have a strobilarin in them. They can increase your water use efficiency. They can help the plant convert sugars better. They can help with what's called nitrate reductase activity, which is basically an enzyme that helps um, convert um, nutrients into sugar, into actual nitrate in the plant, which is usable then for the plant. And a fungicide can all, the strobilarin can actually help that. It can increase your window for grain fill, give you more time, which can delay your harvest a bit, but it does can give you more time for grain fill, which is an improvement on yield. And finally, can improve stress tolerance by um, adjusting, making the stoma, stomata more um, flexible. Once again, just like foliar feeding, time of day, 8 a.m. is best. You can run 8 a.m. or early morning till noon with fungicides, or around 8 o'clock till noon on, with your fungicides. 
and then go do something else in the heat of the day, um, you are better off. The next thing is, is gallons, gallons, gallons. The more you can do is better, at least according to our charts here. When we had a, um, I'm not even sure what the control gallons were, um, to be honest, but when we went to 10 gallons, um, we had a, had a bump. We went to 15, we had a bump, we went to uh, 20 gallons was the best bump of all. More, I recommend a minimum of 15 gallons per acre. I know we're showing a picture of planes here, and that's not even feasible. Would not be economically viable for them to throw 15 gallons, but anything you can have them increase is better. More gallons is more coverage and is better control. If I will argue that a ground rig will not knock down as much as it will gain you in yield, especially if you can follow tram lines from your earlier spray pattern. Um, I don't think you're going to have a lot of ding there. That's my personal opinion. And there are those who will call me and after this, uh, after this and will tell me that I am dead wrong and that they have the stats to prove it. But sometimes their stats are not 100% non-questionable. But I'm going to throw that out there. No matter how you do it, whether it's through aircraft or ground rig, the bottom line is more gallons is better coverage. And with that, I think we're coming to the end of our slide, if it will advance for us. Yes, we are done. And they got it to advance. Thank you so much for listening today. I wanted to get this out pretty quickly. Um, I put this together and another big shout out and thank you to Bex Hybrids for the data. You have any questions, feel free to call me anytime um, with my phone number there, or email reach out, love visiting with you about more information or what you're finding on your farm. Feel free to push back on some of these statements if you feel like they are questionable or want to discuss them further. Absolutely do it. We are always learning here and when you put good information out to you. And we thank you for listening. See you next time.